General Cornwallis issued a written order, and that written order authorized his military to immediately hang any suspected rebels. Cornwallis was actually put in writing that if they had to burn down a farm or two in order to put down the rebellion and pacify the countryside, he would not mind. You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, curators, and authors to tell their stories of the American Revolution, walk in the footsteps of heroes, and proclaim freedom reigns. On today's episode, we are excited and fortunate to have Ken Scarlett. He is the author of Victory Day, Winning American Independence, The Defeat of the British Southern Strategy, which is a newly released book about the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. From first protest to final victory, from Palmetto Publishing, Ken's research background extends over 25 years and includes morale, intelligence, and Revolutionary War research in the Lower South. He is the former president of Scarlet Associates and the Nathaniel Green Freedom Monument Foundation. He is the recipient of the DAR Ellen Walworth Medal for Patriotism and the DAR America 250 Commendation related to his Revolutionary War in South Carolina research. He is a business management graduate from the University of South Carolina and a master's graduate in intelligence and security from the Citadel. Welcome, Ken. Thank you very much for having me, Eric. It's really a pleasure to be here. Ken, we, we spoke in, uh, in our conversations prior to the episode. Honestly, you have regaled me with your research and uh, how you came about making your book. I am in awe of your work and your knowledge, and, uh, and I know our listeners are going to be too. Uh, tell us a little bit about the genesis of your book. Well, uh, the book is uh, about South Carolina and the Revolutionary War from first protest to final victory. So it's divided into two sections. Uh, part one is about defending America, uh, of which South Carolina had a very significant part. And then part two is about the road to achieving independence, which uh, basically gets into the war of territory possession. Uh, who was able to capture the territory uh, so that when the peace talks really be began getting serious, who was going to be able to retain those colonies with the world order? Well, that's, that's interesting that you say that. When the, when the Revolutionary War first jumped off, how many colonies were actually in North America? Or were they dealing with from, from that standpoint? It was certainly more than 13, right? Right. Benjamin Franklin uh, actually wanted all the 26 colonies uh, to be included in the American Revolution. So 13 of the colonies were in Canada, and uh, of course those got lost early in the war in 1775 and early 1776. So there towards the end of the war, when they're thinking about coming up with some sort of compromise, uh, you were talking about the British actually had a plan that kind of mimicked a plan uh, that they worked out with Ireland. Is that, is that right? And, and they, were, they were trying to kind of work that into the final machinations of this uprising from the colonists. Is that right? That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, the British were thinking more in terms of 
home rule independence, not sovereign independence as in our own nation that had no attachment to Britain. Uh, they had granted Ireland home rule in 1780, so they were very familiar with that, and uh, that was in their minds at the time. Wow, wow, that's interesting. There, there, there's a lot to unpack because a couple of reasons. Uh, the papers of Nathaniel Green, which are 13 volumes and involve over 8,000 pieces of correspondence that was produced by the University of North Carolina Press over a 29-year period, uh, again, they were just finished in 2005, is a treasure trove of uh, command information from Nathaniel Green's headquarters over the entire course of the war. We're talking about papers here that involve over uh, 600 letters to and from George Washington, 130 to Thomas Sumter, over 100 to Francis Marion, over 130 to Light Horse Harry Lee, who was perhaps one of the greatest uh, light cavalry commanders during the American Revolution that really get into the war, the, the strategic part of the war and the tactical part of the war and the correspondences between all, all of the different diplomats, politicians, military people on both sides uh, that and really provide tremendous insight into the war that has never really been available to the public until 2005. So for 200 years, this information has been in the dark. In addition to that, with the digitized research that's possible in, with the information age, people are able to go in and look at information from the British archives, uh, the papers of King George, and they're able to also look at family papers that are available throughout South Carolina to get these actual first-hand accounts of these battles. And so you're able to look at it all the way from the, from the on the ground all the way up to how it affected the strategy and the war of territory possession. We like to, to delve into those stories that, that aren't really told in the broad strokes of history. And uh, it sounds like when you talk about unpacking history in your book, you certainly unpacked a lot of these stories that have not been told because they have been archived away or actually stored in a trunk uh, and, and gone from state to state, but never really codified into volumes or a series of volumes that just now came out to the public in 2005. So I'm excited to hear about it. What were some of the, uh, the great things about Nathaniel Green as you've gone through uh, his letters or his correspondence? What, what sticks out to you? That he was probably the main strategist for the American effort during the Revolutionary War, number one. I think number two, he was one of the early people to start writing letters to different Congress people to uh, declare, uh, a, have the Declaration of Independence and to write that and have all of the 13 colonies signed to it and send it over to King George and use it as a public relations for not only the troops 
but also for Americans throughout the colonies, and also to enlist European countries in the American pursuit for independence. The, uh, the defeat of the British strategy in the South, how did that come about? That was long and hard. In a nutshell, it became a war of territory possession. One of the things that the papers bring out very clearly is when the British reinvaded in 1780, uh, well, of course, they, they tried to invade uh, South Carolina. They made two attempts uh, and, and failed. There was one that was called off uh, in 1776, uh, excuse me, 1777, early 1777. Uh, and in 1780, the thrust was to capture Charleston, part of this Southern strategy, what I call Southern strategy 4.0, began in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, after Savannah was secured a couple of years earlier uh, to use as a launching point to then capture Charleston. Initially, when the war was drawn up in 1775, King George visualized Charleston as being the seat of the war in which to conquer the Americas. And of course, that was rebuffed uh, at the First Battle of Charleston in June 1776. So in 1780, when the British were finally successful in capturing uh, Charleston, they then started executing their southern strategy plan. That began by his conquest of going through the upstate with the uh, sending out Tarleton, who was defeated at Cowpens, uh, and uh, went on up to uh, through North Carolina, then back down up to, to Virginia. Then, of course, Cornwallis met Green, and Cornwallis was mauled uh, very significantly at Guilford Courthouse. And when he arrived in Wilmington about a month later, he reported to Clinton, his superior at that time, that with what troops he had left were shoeless and without food when he arrived in, in Wilmington. He had lost over 60% of the army that he had actually began his southern campaign to conquer the rest of South Carolina and North Carolina by the time he got to Wilmington. So uh, that was the first part. And he goes on to Virginia and winds up being cornered on the uh, Yorktown Peninsula and uh, surrendering his forces to the joint French and American forces at Yorktown. So everyone knows that part of the story. So it was a circuitous southern uh, strategy uh, or, or southern campaign by Cornwallis that was really not in the plan, but he winds up in Virginia and uh, the Americans are able to free Virginia from British troops with their surrender at Yorktown. So that's kind of the first step. The second step is then General Nathaniel Green's strategy to take back all of the areas that they had conquered in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia in order to present to the American diplomats who are negotiating on our behalf in Europe that all of the British forces are out and that the territory is possessed by Americans and they are functioning 
elected governments present in all of those states. So that was his goal, and that was the second part of, of what many people call the Southern campaigns. And he did this without winning a battle. The winning thing, I'm not sure I, I subscribe to. If winning is about who controls the territory after the battle is complete, I would submit that he won every battle. If the uh, standard is the uh, British standard or European standard at the time of who possesses the battlefield at the battle's end, then he probably would be classified as not winning any battles except the battle that is really not publicized very much, and that's a battle that I describe in my book is called the Mad Dash. And the Mad Dash takes place uh, after Yorktown, where he actually, with less than 400 men, displaces British troops in Dorchester at Monk's Corner, uh, areas in the Low Country and pushes the British back into just the Charleston area and the island surrounding Charleston. Well, to your point, the British would claim victory at Hopkirk Hill, for instance, but really, after the dust had settled, they pulled out of Camden, right? And, and uh, 96 the same way, Augusta the same way. So it all depends on your viewpoint and, and your definition of victory of the day, that sort of thing. Uh, he, was a, he was a great tactician, but you go on to say that it's even more, he, he had even more of a role in the southern campaigns and the territories as they pushed towards the end of the, uh, end of the war itself and they started coming up with um, the deliberations about the peace. Certainly. At the end of these conflicts, you're looking for a political solution. You want to have as much territory as you can. I think that's very correct. War is a means for reaching a political solution. Right. The, there are many similarities with the Lower South uh, to the Korean conflict. So, for example, uh, the, the British, after Yorktown, were uh, all in on a two-country solution. And the two-country solution probably would have would, would certainly have included uh, Georgia and South Carolina because they possessed both of those capital cities, and probably uh, North Carolina was still on the negotiating table to go over to the British because they controlled Wilmington, which was the capital at the time. And even though they only controlled eastern North Carolina to where Cross Creek is today, uh, or or I should say Fayetteville and uh, in, in Fort Bragg. Uh, that used to be Cross Creek, and that was controlled also by the British. So that was firmly controlled. In addition, they had just, uh, the, the militia up there, had uh, the Loyalist militia, had kidnapped the uh, governor, uh, Burke. Uh, and so there was no uh, actual governor of the state. There was still a royal governor in Wilmington at the time, and there was still a, uh, there was a royal governor uh, in Charleston at the time, and there was a rural governor in Savannah at the time also. So um, that they were looking at a two-country solution, uh, and, and that's uh, where negotiations were headed, very much like we ended the Korean War at the 38th parallel, where uh, the uh, south of the 38th parallel was uh, went to the South Koreans, and then uh, north of that went to the North Koreans. 
So when you say a two-country solution, you're talking what would, what would make up those two countries? Well, the French and Spain, uh, uh, France and Spain had to be satisfied in the negotiation. They had to sign off uh, be, because they, had, uh, they were supplying the lion's share of the uh, gunpowder and equipment and uniforms to the, uh, the, to the Americans. Uh, and they had enjoined the effort uh, t for our struggle for independence at the time. Uh, Britain did not take the American idea of independence as it, as it was expressed in the Declaration of Independence. They did not take that seriously. So the two countries that the British envisioned, Carolinas and Georgia, uh, would have home rule, uh, possibly home rule, uh, maybe under complete control of uh, the, the British, where the rural governors would stay in, 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 in place. And then north of uh, North Carolina line between Virginia, uh, that would be a, an entirely different country. There was, uh, there was actually some impetus for him to do that, right? I mean, a lot of the, the areas around the South were named after royalty in, in England, right? Oh, exactly right. King George, uh, Georgia was named after King George III's father. So he wasn't about to give up Georgia. Uh, and in addition, uh, South Carolina was, uh, was the richest colony uh, at the time. And uh, it was very, very important to, uh, for the crown to retain uh, Charleston. I, I should also note that the trade winds at the time blew uh, right to Charleston's harbor, if you will. Uh, uh, of course, swinging through the West Indies. And so with the trade with the West Indies in Charleston were absolutely essential. Uh, South Carolina was a major producer of rice and indigo, which were uh, world exports at the time. And with the, all the rivers that South Carolina had, those, uh, those materials could be transported up and down those rivers very, very rapidly. So, for example, just to give you an idea of the scope of the Carolina economy in 1775, we're looking at a 95 to 1 return on capital. So, if a person at the time invested a, a dollar uh, in indigo or rice at the time, they would be on track to receive $95 back in 1775. If you look at the balance of trade. One of the best-selling books in 1776 was The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. And Adam Smith referred to the Carolina economy as being uh, very, very diverse. He was promoting at the time this whole idea of free trade, which was not really considered by European countries very much up until he wrote that book. The free trade he maintained would put an invisible hand of supply and demand into effect, which would basically make everyone richer. He wrote that book with South Carolina in mind. The, the whole idea of the, the two-country solution, where did you find that? Oh, uh, if you look at the negotiation records, the uh, letters from King George, now that the uh, the letters from King George have been released. They were released several years ago to the public. Uh, it's, it's very clear that 
King George was insistent on keeping Carolina, and the orders after Yorktown were to hold all posts. And you can see the chain of command issuing those orders from Clinton to uh, Carlton. Uh, when Carlton replaced Clinton, uh, he was to retain all posts, and particularly South Carolina. South Carolina was named after King Charles, uh, and Charleston was named after King Charles also. Charleston was actually referred to as Little London in Europe. So he replaced Clinton with Carlton? Yes, he did. When was that? That was after Yorktown, and it was uh, in the uh, early part of 1782. Uh, and of course, Yorktown was in November of uh, 1781. And he replaced Clinton because there was a, a lack of confidence in Clinton at the time. And Carlton was brought out of retirement. And of course, uh, Carlton was credited with taking back the Canadian colonies in 1775 and early 1776 and was uh, awarded the Order of the Bath by King George himself. Interesting, uh, Lord Germain, uh, who was the Secretary of State in England at the time, uh, was the only person to vote against him achieving that Order of the Bath. Germain and Carlton had two different ways of going about subduing the colonies in North America, did they not? That's exactly correct. Germain's idea was a policy of punishment uh, and uh, barbarity and to suspend all rights of habeas corpus and to treat uh, rebels or suspected rebels as uh, traitors and insurrectionists. That, were not, uh, that would not be allowed due process, and the military could do what they pleased with any suspects. As a matter of fact, this was the policy of the British government. There was the Treason Act that was passed in 1778 by the English Parliament that actually condoned the policy. So for our listeners who maybe aren't aware from a law enforcement side, when you suspend habeas corpus, what does that mean? So the suspension of habeas corpus, if we look at the Latin term, I believe it translates something like produce the body. However, that really doesn't tell you much. Habeas corpus is, uh, is steeped in English law, and at that time it was part of the Englishman's rights. The Englishman's rights was you could not be arrested without being charged with a crime, and then you were also entitled to bail. That was completely suspended in Boston in April of 1775 by uh, General Gage, who commanded the British forces uh, around Boston. So basically, for the everyday man, suspension of habeas corpus means a person from the government or a representative from the government just came out and became judge and jury and executioner, however he decided he wanted to do it. No trial. No, no uh, Miranda rights or anything like that. They, they just came in and did summary justice wherever they felt like they needed to do it. Is that correct? That is exactly correct. And so can you imagine sitting in your home and a soldier coming to, or a group of soldiers coming to your door, barging in and taking someone, one of your loved ones in your family and, and taking them away? And then if anyone tries to protest or becomes violent, then they would probably be harmed at that point in time. 
and you would probably, there would be a good chance that the, your loved one would never be seen again. I've got to go down this rabbit hole, if you don't mind, uh, but how far down the chain of command did that go? So the suspension of habeas corpus, did it go to the loyalists or the Tories, or, or was it just confined to the, the British regulars uh, when they suspended those rights or when they came into a community? Well, in the beginning, which the beginning of the suspension of habeas corpus was in April of 1775 in Boston, and it was limited to Boston. However, it progressed throughout the colonies as the war dragged on. And then you got the Treason Acts of 1778. To really put some teeth behind it. You told me a story about, uh, in your research of the book, calling up a, an archivist in England and asking this question. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, as I may have mentioned to you, I wrote the book during COVID, or, or shall I say my wife requested that I write the book during COVID. One of the advantages that I found in writing during COVID is I was able to call around different archives and there were people there that often had time to spend with me to help me do research that I could not be physically present to do the research, but they would do the research for me and then provide the information to me. I have to say that the British Archives was very wonderful to me during this uh, period of time. And w one of the uh, many documents that I was able to uh, be supplied with from the British Archives was the goings-on about the debate of the Treason Act in, that Parliament uh, debated on and voted in favor of uh, in 1778. That made the suspension of habeas corpus, that empowered the military to really do whatever they wanted to do in the 13 colonies, and it indemnified them from being prosecuted or from being discharged from the uh, army. It makes me wonder if uh, in the proclamations where Clinton at the siege of Charleston gave everyone parole to go back home and then revoked those paroles right before he got on the ship and went back north, did the treason acts have anything to do with, with some of those proclamations? You know, it, it makes me wonder about that. General Clinton grew up on Long Island. Uh, I'm, he was familiar as a, as a kid with the culture of Americans. He actually belonged to, to the provincial militia in Long Island. So he knew what the provincial uh, militia or, or the Patriot militia was all about. He had great insight into that. He was more conciliatory once he was able to get Charleston to surrender. Uh, he as a matter of fact, his uh, uh, officer that managed uh, estates in the area was very conciliatory towards patriots who owned plantations that were producing the lion's share of uh, indigo and rice at the time and uh, allowed them to, to, to carry on and did not go through a significant confiscation of his, uh, estates. That only uh, happened when Balford came in after Cornwallis took over from Clinton. So Clinton was very conciliatory after 
the capitulation of Charleston. He allowed people to, uh, the militia to be disbanded as long as they put down their arms and go home. But the key here was he said that, and, and part of the document that they signed was that they would come under British protection. That's a key phrase that often gets overlooked in understanding the American Revolution. Being under the king's protection meant that if I put down my arms, that if someone comes and harasses me, whether or not they're a patriot or a bandit or whatever, that the, the king's uh, law enforcement and their military are going to protect me and my family from uh, being accosted or, or brutality and that sort of thing. That was Clinton's goal. When Clinton left uh, and went back to New York in June of 1780, Cornwallis took over. And one of the first things that he did is he promoted Tarleton. Many people have heard of Bannister Tarleton. Uh, so here's a 26-year-old uh, kid, if you will, that uh, had dropped out of Oxford and was good friends with Lord Rawdon. Uh, they actually roomed together at Oxford. So they came over to America to basically make a name for themselves so that they could have a, a great career back in England after they basically became heroes for putting down the rebellion in, uh, in America. Cornwallis uh, not only promoted him to spread fire and sword throughout the land, he also promoted another person by the name of Ferguson who was to do the same thing throughout South Carolina and even into North Carolina. Uh, and their job was to put down all resistance. To put teeth into that, General Cornwallis issued a written order, and that written order authorized his military to immediately hang any suspected rebels. Cornwallis was actually put in writing that if they had to burn down a farm or two in order to put down the rebellion and pacify the countryside, he would not mind. These, these are just what was in writing. And many of the list, your listeners out there who have served in the military, they know the difference between a written order and verbal orders. Verbal orders in the field are usually much more harsh and more specific than a general written order. But that's what Cornwallis did to immediately inflame the situation after Clinton went back to New York. And that's how he prosecuted the war. Balford simultaneously seized all plantations that were thought to be owned by patriots or suspected patriots or people that he just didn't like. The, the name of the book is Victory Day, Winning American Independence, The Defeat of the British Southern Strategy. You did a great work here. How would people find your book? Well, uh, the book is available online through Amazon Books or Barnes & Noble Books. Uh, if for people that live down in Charleston, 
I would uh, uh, point you to uh, the exchange. Uh, the exchange uh, it sells the book. I, I should mention that a portion of the proceeds go to uh, the exchange building. Uh, the exchange building was uh, it's a British built building and it still exists in Charleston. I, I often refer to it as the Independence Hall of the South. And uh, they can also find it at the Preservation Society. They can also find it at the Charleston Historical Society. And they can find it at the gift shops at Fort Moultrie and Fort Sullivan. I have also been informed by the Upcountry Museum in Greenville that they are carrying the book as well. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it.